Blog Talk Radio. Hello out there. My name is Sam Maxwell, and welcome to a special weekend edition of the Bedford & Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the research process of the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series I am developing. And we welcome back a retired SF State lecturer, Spain Arbor, to the program, who was with us a few weeks ago. How are you doing, Spain? I'm doing fine, thanks, Sam. Um, well, first of all, be- before we get into some of this, uh, uh, the, the uh, talking about your book, Seasons Past, that you co-wrote with Ford Hovis under the, uh, the pen name of Damon Rice, um, I just wanted to see what you uh, thought about these playoffs right now at this World Series. Uh, playoffs, pretty exciting. Uh, I was very interested in that first game when, after the umpire at second base um, blew that call, uh, the umpires gathered around, all six of them gathered around, to uh, determine whether or not uh, that the runner at first, at second, was safe or not, and uh, and they actually changed the call. And uh, I thought that that was quite unusual. And back, if you go back in time to ten or twenty, or even certainly back in the in the forties and fifties, an umpire never would have done that. So. Uh, I think uh, in the age of the instant replay, that was a development that um, uh, was interesting and certainly uh, I thought it was appropriate uh, for a change to have the umpires decide, yeah, our man was wrong and uh, and we were going to reverse the call. I, I like that a lot. I'm happy that um, I live in Massachusetts now and I'm kind of rooting for the Red Sox, but I'm also an old-time National League fan. I was glad to see that it split after two games. Uh, that means it's got to go at least five, and uh, I'm hoping they'll get back to Boston and uh, go to you for either six or seven and have the game end. The well, all, of us, end there. all of us baseball fans, uh, when you're not watching your, your team in the playoffs, obviously I think that when your team's there, you're fine with a, a sweep, even though the baseball fan in you loves a six or seven game series, it, it's quite thrilling, obviously, and, and heart wrenching. Uh, but but yeah, I certainly want to see this, and I believe it's going to go six or seven games. It looks that way. It looks that way. It'll, it's going it's going to be fascinating. Uh, of course, you've got two great baseball towns, Boston and St. Louis, and uh, those St. Louis fans are waiting to to uh, do their stuff, and that, it, it, it's going to be lots of great atmosphere out there. They're, so, they're certainly a loud bunch for, right. for one who, you know, they, uh, St. Louis is not a vicious town when it comes right. to baseball, but they are certainly passionate about it. And uh, I think, you know, since we're here to talk about baseball history, uh, uh, you were not the first person to bring up how that was unprecedented when it came to all of the, the umpires getting together to, make the, to get the call right, especially since they're going to be expanding in some replay next year. Right. I've never seen it before, and I was happy to see it, uh, especially since I, I, was, uh, I was rooting for the Red Sox, and I was happy to see that, um, that, that take place. A great forward, bit of forward movement in the evolution of the game. And, and for me, uh, you know, personally, I'm, I'm happy that the Mets got a no-hitter uh, under, you know, under that line before the, uh, the instant replay would have shown Carlos Beltran with one hit in that game. But I'll tell you, Sid, I was there. I was at the game. And uh, what all you hear about Mets getting close to no-hitters back in the day uh, they have 35 one-hitters, which basically became the Mets no-hitter. And so I 
personally, I find it very uh, uh, fitting that that the it was a blown call that helped lead the Mets to glory in terms of that game. How many of those did Tom Seaver have? I would I wonder. Tom Seaver had a lot. Apparently, they're, they're the one of the more controversial ones. Uh, and not to digress too much after this, but but uh, Dwight Gooden had a one hitter where the Ray Knights uh, uh, bobbled the ball a bit, but it was called a hit, and so. Um, apparently that was a bit of a controversy back in either 1980. Uh, I guess Ray Knight, it was 1986. I don't think he was with them in 1985. But um, that, uh, yeah, go ahead. I remember seeing him when he first came up, and uh, in his in, in in those early days, he was absolutely one of the great pitchers of all time. I thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but uh, anyway. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, you know, before we go off into a Mets uh, 1980s tandem, which which we uh, clearly could do, let's go all the way back to uh, the 1880s and the 1850s and and the early part of uh, baseball history. Now, you wrote this book with Ford Hovis, uh, as I said, under the pen name Damon Rice, and it's such a fascinating, informal look at the history of baseball, and specifically the history of New York baseball. And so... When did you first really gain that kind of appreciation and also that kind of want for for uh, looking up uh, the history of baseball well, regarding the the 1850s? Well, after after the Dodgers left there in, in 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 1958, I was very much uh, I was a heartbroken young man back then, and uh, there was a sense of loss. And I think that one of the reasons that I uh, that Ford and I decided to write that book was to try to recapture that lost era, hence the title, Seasons Past. Uh, we originally had planned to write a history of baseball in New York uh, and that it was going to go beyond that period, of t- beyond the departure of the two teams. But when we sat down to write it, uh, we decided that it would actually be better to end it when the teams left, that way it covered a finite period of time and was not would not be an open-ended book. Later on, uh, as we got into the book, we felt that just um, covering one season after the next without anything to hold it together, we wanted to give it a little life, a little punch, and that's why we added the story of the three generations of the Rice family uh, from the early days up until 1958 so that we had a, uh, some connective tissue uh, that we hoped would bring the narrative alive. Well, you know, especially in the father-son tandem, it certainly uh, just shows how the, the history of baseball has that uh, ingrained in it in terms of uh, the family, the way the families come together regarding baseball. Absolutely. Uh, and with uh, Fletcher, Fletcher Rice, the, the grandfather technically of Damon Rice, um, he gets caught up in, in the uh, the gambling aspect of early part of baseball. Uh, and uh, obviously, I want everybody to read it. Uh, but if you could talk a little bit about that and, and where you got some of the inspiration for some of these stories regarding Fletcher and the gambling. Well, in one of the in the epigraph to the first chapter. Uh, we have a we have a quote from uh, the Spalding's baseball guide that's, that that says something like this: "The early days of baseball 
were marked by crooked work and uh up until the formation of the of the National League in 1876 gambling was very much part of the game and throwing games was very much part of the tradition it was called hippodroming was the name that was used for that and uh so I got very interested I wrote that portion of the book and I got very interested in exactly how the gambling worked and uh, there were po- sellers of, of pools based on the outcome outside the ballparks and people would um routinely bet on the games and they would routinely be fixed and so when the National League was formed uh, in 1876, one of the goals was to get the gambling out of baseball. But as we well know from the Black Sox scandal and later on the terrible story of Pete Rose, gambling uh, has never really been out of out of the game. And uh, of course, if you're in Nevada, you can uh, still gamble on on, on baseball games. Mm-hmm. So it's it's there as and of course very much a part of football too. Mm-hmm. And it seems as if, though, that, that the Pete Rose uh, incident was really the last that we've, uh, you know, at least in terms of the public eye, the last thing that we've seen regarding gambling and baseball. Yeah, but and cheating. every clubhouse now has a sign. Right, but cheating hasn't gone. We've got the steroids business. So, uh, it, you know, there's, there's there always seem, people always seem to look for ways to, to uh, take advantage, to get an extra edge, and uh, whether it's cheating at gambling or enhancing one's uh, skills with, uh, with 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 uh, steroids or some other some some other um, uh, uh, chemical uh, chemical um, some other chemistry, uh, that it's um, it, it's it seems it's always something to be on the lookout for. Uh, uh, as far as I'm concerned, a different type of gambling other yeah. than uh, money, right? Um, but uh, in terms of some of the fictional aspects of it and, and the informal parts of them, watching, let's say the uh, the Atlantics and the and the Reds in the first ever extra innings game, the, it's a very famous uh, game that the Reds decided are the ones who said, "Why don't we just keep playing?" Um, some of, some of the fictional aspects, uh, where did you get the inspiration? Was it straight out of your head, or were there some uh, inspirations for uh, of, of actual uh, uh, material that you found regarding this history? Uh, I did a lot of research, read a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of uh, secondary sources and primary sources, too. Back in New York at that time, in the 19th century, there was a magazine devoted to sports and the arts called the New York Clipper. And as part of my research, I went to the library at Lincoln Center, the New York Public Library branch. It's part of Lincoln Center and uh, got out old copies of the Clipper on microfilm and looked at them and gained some information from that. So there was a lot. And then there were, of course, there was imagination thrown into it too. There was a character, a very famous a uh, gambler who was who operated sometimes in Saratoga and sometimes uh, in New York City called Old Smoke Morrissey, and uh, he was uh, well known for his uh, involvement in gambling. And uh, I looked into his life. There, I found a biography of him that was written, oh, I think back in the 30s, and uh, there was a lot about his life there. And I used some of that and then added some fictional episodes to, to flesh to flesh out that 
that part of the story. But gambling was there, and there were a lot of unsavory characters who were there to exploit it, uh, going back uh, going back to that era. One of the things that's fascinating for me is that's basically what I'm trying to do when it comes to this Dodger project in 1937 and 1957, and telling the story of Brooklyn and its Dodgers and uh, so it's certainly inspiration for me when it comes to fleshing out the story, you know, with some fictional side of it uh, in terms of some of the characters that lived around Ebbets Field in Brooklyn. Absolutely. Uh, and, of course, those of us who lived there at that time, there, we, there's so much to remember about that. And uh, later on in the book, we talk about watching uh, baseball games in bars uh, in the 50s, and, and that was very much a part of the scene because when TV came in, uh, it, was a, it took a while before there was a TV set in every house, but in the Brooklyn bars, uh, there was certainly one of the ways to get customers was to get a TV in there, and many, many of the bars showed the, the Dodger games and Giant games and Yankee games, for that matter, on TV. They were all, uh, they were all advertised by uh, beer companies, Schaefer and Rheingold, and uh, maybe, I think the, the Yankees were Ballantyne. Yeah, because Mel Allen called a home run at one time. He called them a, a home run, a Ballantyne blast. So um, you'd be watching the game uh, in a bar, and you'd be drinking the beers to support the, uh, the sponsor who was uh, paying for the telecast. Now, you know, just to digress a bit uh, in terms of that, I found Schaefer's at the Target in Brooklyn right across the street from the Atlantic Avenue Flatbush site. Is that uh, right? Schaefer's still exists. Schaefer's is still a beer. It's still manufactured in Milwaukee. Uh, Rheingold, however, I don't believe still exists. No, I don't, th- I don't think so either. Although Rheingold was back in the 40s and 50s a very popular beer. And they uh, they sponsored the first Mets broadcast, I'm pretty sure. And, of course, there was Miss Rheingold, the pretty girl who uh, was the spokesperson for uh, Rheingold Beer, and you saw her picture on the subway ads, among other things. So beer and baseball have always been very uh, closely connected, no question about it. And, I mean, yeah, it's still obviously, you know, Budweiser, Coors Light, uh, the... the uh uh, obviously, a highlight reel will be sponsored by something like Coors Light. It's, it's clearly still uh, big, even though something like uh, you know Verizon and, and cell phones and, and other items of interest have have taken over in terms of the sponsors. Whereas it used to be, like you said, mainly beer and cig- and cigarettes too. Right. Uh, right. There was a sign advertising Chesterfield cigarettes right out in the center field in the polo grounds uh, and. Uh, and uh, I believe uh, I believe uh, the Dodgers were um, were sponsored at one time by Old Gold Cigarettes. So in that era, when advertising of cigarettes was uh, still legal, mm-hmm. uh, they were they were right in there. Beer and cigarettes and baseball. <laughs> well, it hasn't really you know not advertising is is clearly really hasn't curbed completely the uh, the tobacco sales. So it, it doesn't it looks like. Uh, it, it, it hasn't really mattered in terms of that. Uh, you know, you're just not advertising to kids anymore, just having it right in front. And to right. segue back to the 1880s, the inception of baseball cards were from cigarette packs. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. 
And speaking of which, let's uh, discuss some of these old-time teams. And uh, one of the lines that, that I had to write down, because it just, uh, you know, some things never change. If ever a ball club was relegated to the status of second-class citizens, it was the old New York Metropolitans. Yeah. And uh, you discussed some of the things that you found about the the original New York Metropolitan teams. Well, the, they were a ragtag bunch. They were really a, the second team in New York. They they played in the American Association at the, at, the, at the same time that the Giants were coming up in the National League, and uh, they they never had the the glamour, the glitz, and the, but they did have some good players. But what was interesting about the Metropolitans was that when Casey Stengel took over as the first manager of the New York Mets, being an old-time baseball guy, he referred to the, the Mets at the very outset as the Metropolitans. So in his mind, he saw them as a uh, reincarnation of uh, that old team from the 19th century, uh, and uh, I don't. And I and I think that the early Mets were were ev- they were even worse than the old Metropolitans, for that matter. So, uh, what stopped them from continuing? I mean, you know, the Dodgers and the Giants franchises have now been around since around 1882. That's a long time to be an entity. So, what? Where where did it go wrong for the the original Metropolitans? I, I just think they were a lesser product, and the Giants, uh, which was when the Giants came into being, uh, they were just the better product, and the Mets just kind of faded away. And uh, then you had the emergence of the American Association, and uh, the Dodgers uh, appeared. Uh, and uh, they were just left out. Of, they were just left out and went their way. Now, now in terms of that transition from the American Association uh, getting dissolved uh, to the National League being the only, uh, again, one, once again, the only team in town, the, the only uh, uh, league in town. Um, well, I think there were two. There were two leagues. The Dodgers originally were part of another league. The, they were part of the American Association. Right. I believe I'd have to go back. I wrote the book so long ago that some of this is a little bit fuzzy in my mind, but, but the Dodgers actually began in the American Association and then were eventually merged into the, uh, into the National League, if I recall correctly. Yeah, yeah that, that, is, that is true, and they had several different names. They were originally known as the, the Trolley Dodgers, but it wasn't Obviously, it seems just based off of my research that, in general, uh, these were nicknames for teams, for something to to easily refer to the team as, and eventually it became a branding thing, and eventually it became more of a solid entity as opposed to uh, all these different, you know, depending on who you were, you referred to them either as the trolley dodgers or the bridegrooms. Now, speaking of the bridegrooms, uh, for all the listeners who don't know, the Dodgers were known as the bridegrooms at some point. And if you could speak about why that was. Well, they had a whole bunch of guys who got a whole bunch of players who got married within a few months of each other. And so they took on, they got that nickname for a while, the bridegrooms. After that, and for a fairly long period of time, they were called the Superbas. And uh, they, they, they held that uh, moniker for a number of years. And then Wilbert Robinson became the manager. And as a result of that, uh, 
Robins, they became known as the Robins, and they were the Robins in through the 20s, as I recall. Mm-hmm. And then Wilbert Robinson got into a beef with uh, uh, one of the sports writers on the New York Sun, and the New York Sun started calling, went back and called them the Dodgers, going back to the original trolley Dodgers name and dropping the trolley and going with the Dodgers. And, and that was when... So then, in, in the thir- from the '30s on, they were the Dodgers. I'm not sure exactly when the team actually incorporated that name uh, officially into the team name. I don't I don't know exactly when that was, but I would think well, in the I'll tell, '30s. I'll, I'll tell you, the first year that Larry McPhail was on was the first year that the Dodgers scripts came into existence. And so before that, it was either the V on the left side of the chest or it was the uh, Brooklyn across the chest. So that was in the late 30s when McHale mm-hmm. came in. Exactly, exactly. And uh, he certainly helped uh, you know, solidify their brand finally after, after so many years of uh, being a bit flip, flippy-floppy uh, about who they were. Uh, you know, they, it, it seems as if, uh, based off of what I've read, they, they took too long to get towards the future uh, towards the future type of baseball that was going on. A lot of teams were ahead of them, and then they rapid, once Larry McPhail came, came aboard, they rapidly moved to be uh, um, one of the premier teams in the league. And he was a great innovator, too. He brought night baseball. Uh, he, he, his, one of his great innovations was night baseball, which he started in Brooklyn. He was also there uh, in the late 30s for the first, te- his first telecast of a Mm-hmm. Of, of a baseball game, uh, so um, yeah, Mc, and a very flamboyant character uh, who later went on to the Yankees. But McPhail, during that brief period when he was with the Dodgers, uh, was uh, quite a quite a personality, and added a lot of pizzazz to the team for sure. And uh, before long, the team actually uh, uh, became a winner, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and we could talk about that. That. They, 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 of course, came a cropper with the Yankees, uh, but um, they did have some good seasons uh, mm-hmm. uh, back uh, right at, I think, 40 was, was, was that the, was that the, the year? 40, they, they battled for the pennants with Cincinnati mainly. Uh, you know, um, if, I look at the, if I look at the standings, it, uh, I think the Cardinals would have been there, but I know the, the Reds, which is... You know, it, uh, of course, the team that Larry McPhail put together with the Reds eventually came, you know, uh, hit the work he did over there eventually became, uh, you know, uh, a nuisance for the Dodgers. And, and before they could get over the hump, they had to deal with the Larry McPhail's Reds. Right. And then when Ricky came in, he came over from St. Louis. So mm-hmm. you have all these these connections from one team to the next. Right, and, and all those classic uh, uh, battles between St. Louis and the Dodgers. Right. Uh, so, uh, it, it, well, it looks like Brooklyn, you know, they, they had a great 1940, but um, if I were to look at the, the – uh, I'm looking at the standings right now. There were 12 games behind Cincinnati who won the pennant that year. And, so and so then, it was games, 40, then it was 41. Uh, 41, right, was, was the, the year. And, and they only beat out – St. Louis by about two and a half games in 1941. Right, and then that um, was that was the year 41 with the with the Colts third strike or the swinging mm-hmm. I guess the strike that Tommy Henrik uh, got made it to first base and uh, Yankees went on to win that game. Yeah, and uh, and then the series was effectively over after that. 
it looks like the closest the Dodgers got to chase to getting to Cincinnati uh, in terms of the standings was on Sunday, August 18th. They beat the Boston, who I believe were called the Bees at the time, if I'm correct. Well, uh, or not not the Braves. No, they were the Bees at the time. They were the uh-huh. Boston Bees, and and uh, let's see, it was yep, Casey Stengel was managing them, so uh, they beat the uh, the Braves by a score of three to one. Uh, that day, and, and they, they they were four and a half behind the Reds that day. But then uh, they lost St. Louis by a score of three to nothing the next day, and then uh, unfortunately could not maintain and and uh, finish 12 games out of first place. But you know, when you talk to people about uh, the season, about about uh, going through the 1940 season, it was clear that the the Dodgers were on the way up. Right, and then they won the pennant the following year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and then the war happened, which just brings up a whole other uh, uh, aspect to to how everything went. And in 1942, uh, they they won 104 games. Unfortunately, St. Louis won 106. And by then, we were in the war, and pretty soon uh, the players started drifting uh, into the service, and uh, so you had that period until after the war, until after 45, when uh, they started coming back uh, and uh, and baseball got back uh, to normal again. Mm-hmm. And eventually the, the Giants uh, had a good team, and, and they battled uh, with the Giants, who eventually also had their uh, their their former manager, Leo DeRocher. And in the start of Chapter 2, you have a great quote that says, the rivalry between New York and Brooklyn as regards to baseball is unparalleled in the history of the national game. And this is when Brooklyn was still a city. Uh, New York Times, October 18, 1889. Um, right. And, and because the Dodgers were in the American Association, uh, they were able to face each other in one of the first ever uh, World Series. Although uh, it, I don't think it was called that at the time, but right, the right. First, uh, first meeting of First meeting between two different leagues, yeah. What do you remember about that that series? Uh, uh, I know it's been a while since. Uh, I, I just, it's. Uh, I'd have to go back and read it, read it over again. Mm-hmm. I know at the time that I was writing the book, I went into the newspaper accounts from the time to to reconstruct it. But uh, exactly what went on? Uh, can you can you tell me uh, who won? Yeah, <laughs> uh, the Giants. The Giants won that one, yeah. I believe. Yeah, Giants win. I I wrote down right here. <laughs> I didn't write down uh, in how many games, but I believe that was a. Well, and and this brings up uh, an interesting thing because for a while they were they were back and forth when the early uh, the the early part of um, the American League's history and and uh, the World Series history. They sometimes had nine. Uh, you had to win five games in a nine-game series. Right, and I, I have personally, I think that the seven-game series, they got it right. They did get it right, although you know, hanging out in the bars here in Northampton, Massachusetts, uh, talking about the the two-three-two format, uh, people who have been watching or basketball fans uh, think that it's not seven games may be right, but that it should be two-two-two and one. I've heard that. Uh, people uh, argue that that the two three two format is a little bit unfair. If it is unfair, it's more unfair by virtue of uh, 
giving the uh, giving the home field advantage to the to the team from the league that won the All Star game, which right. to me is totally preposterous. But that's another story. <laughs> right, right. That's a, that's another conversation. But I see what you're saying because let's say you know hypothetically, and you can look back to the the 1969 uh, Mets is a great example. They you know they lost the first game, but were able to take the second game, and then they win three at home, and and Baltimore never got a chance to defend itself on its home turf again. Well, um, but with that pitching that the Mets had in right. '69, uh, that was that was uh, that was a series to behold. Oh yeah, uh, oh yeah. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, I, I I think that the, I I agree with with you that the seven game format works, and some people aren't really aware that that there was at the turn of the century, and if you look at those early those first World Series between uh, the at between the athletics and the and and the giants they've played around with a bunch of formats but the mm-hmm. seven game format has been around for a long long time way back certainly when i was a kid for sure right uh, it used to be that they would just alternate one year be the american league the next year be the national league which uh, my, works you know which it, works. it's just but right. but i mean like i can see the reaction to that tie game the all-star tie game uh, right. Obviously, they, they reacted a little too quickly because uh, everybody was, you know, thought it was horrendous that that they there was no outcome for that 13 inning game that they, right. they canceled it. And uh, you know, I, that that was a quick reaction to say, all right, well, we'll make it mean something. Then. Right, I understand that. Now, before we go, uh, speaking of which, and speaking of those early. Uh, times in the World Series history, uh, you uh, you open Chapter Four with a story of um, Fred Knowles, the secretary of the Giants, the New York Giants, going down to Baltimore to try to persuade John McGraw to, to become the manager of the Giants. And uh, obviously, you know, we all know, uh, and if we don't all know, John McGraw had a 30-year career and won many World, uh, World Series with the Giants. Um, so, and one of the great managers of all time uh, was considered to be rough, Considered to be uh, more aggressive, no gentleman was he, but right. uh, he was he was a, a great manager and absolutely is in the Hall of Fame and deserves to be there for sure. And um, and, and you 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 uh, it's a very informal take uh, on that meeting. So was there anything that you you found that gave you such a such a great uh, look into into the original meeting of of Fred Knowles, the secretary. Of in, in my in my research from somewhere, I can't remember where now. I found an article in an old magazine that talked about that meeting, uh, and so someone was remembering it or ha- had spoken to one of the principals and and, rec- and, and written it down. So uh, and so that that was that that meeting as told in the book is uh, that's pretty accurate based on uh, some research that I did it when great. I was putting the book together. And to segue back, this is a good segue back to Brooklyn. Uh, there's a famous story about John McGraw and Charlie Evans getting into it, and, and if you, uh, I'm, I, I, I know that you haven't researched the book in a while, and you, you know, it's been it's been a, a while since you've even read it, but if you can tell uh, that story of the rhubarb that Charlie Evans and John McGraw got into. Gee, I, gee, I'm I'm at a loss. I'd have to go back and and look at that. Um, uh, can you could you bring me up to date a little bit? Give me a little bit of 
of a hint? Yeah, uh, I, I believe he was getting into, uh, and I'm I'm a little uh, blank on it, even though I, I've recently read that that gotten ahead of the uh, in the book. Um, I think John McGraw was getting into it with an umpire during a Dodgers and Giants game, and uh, I, I wish I had the page right now. But anyway, he he says um, uh, Charlie Evans basically says something about sitting down and and. Uh, he he says he said, John McGraw says something to Charlie and, and and Charlie goes did you just call me a bastard and yeah. John McGraw says no I called you a son of a bitch loud enough for everybody in the section that's to hear. right and, now I remember that yeah <laughs> uh, I think where I when that, where, the place where I found that uh, there were blanks and 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 in the book we fill in the blanks okay uh, exactly so that's exactly. how that that's how that worked but but uh, McGraw certainly was a foul mouthed fellow and uh, uh, and uh, and a no holes barred fellow and uh, a very tough aggressive uh, ball player uh, and first a ball player then later a manager and uh, he came up the Baltimore Orioles the original Baltimore Orioles were a failing franchise uh and uh, so that's that resulted in his coming the, the, i'm sorry the, the the original american league baltimore Orioles. right right well uh, spain it's always a pleasure to, to talk some baseball with you and talk about this book and, and i'm going to you know i have several more questions regarding it so uh, i certainly welcome you back onto the podcast to discuss uh, some more stuff at a later date happy to talk to you anytime sam All right, thank you very much. That's our show, everybody. Catch us next time. Take care.